We're going to begin reading this evening, verse 11, and we will read all the way through chapter 3, verse 7. Brethren, let us hear God's holy word. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God, that with well-doing we may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy, if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongly. For what glory is it, if, when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if, when ye do well, and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Likewise, ye wives be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also with, uh, may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, 
whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. Likewise ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Amen. May the Lord be pleased to bless this to our hearts this evening. The submission of wives to their husbands is an explosive and emotion-laden issue. It is a subject that many would prefer not to discuss at all, and few are eager to practice it in a biblical way. Of those who will even broach the subject, or I should say among those who would even dare to broach the subject, there's often very great understanding uh, or misunderstanding. So, uh, professing evangelicals, unfortunately, often ignore these portions of Scripture or redefine them so that they no longer mean what they say. But those who love Christ, those who have been cleansed from their sins by faith in His precious shed blood, long to study, understand, and apply the word of their heavenly Redeemer to every aspect of their lives. And there alone is true liberty and freedom. So under the influence of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle, as we have studied in the last few weeks, the Apostle Paul, has told wives that they're to submit themselves to their own husbands as under the Lord Jesus. Moreover, he tells us that husbands are to love their wives as Christ selflessly and sacrificially loves his bride, the church. Peter takes the very same theme in hand in a slightly different context and yet in such a way that we may clearly see that he and the Apostle Paul, Paul are in harmony. I can tell this is going to be one of those evenings where very little that's coming out of my brain is connected to my tongue. So you, you pray that uh, I get this out without having to, cor- to correct every other sentence. <clears throat> I don't know why uh, there's so much synapse problem sometimes, but there is this evening. So... God willing, I will attempt to speak something that approaches coherent English this evening and uh, try to handle the Word of God in a way that will be edifying to you and will be honoring to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, God willing, if you've understood what I have uh, muddled through here for the last five minutes, Peter and Paul are certainly in agreement. And as we work through this passage, I think that that will be abundantly clear, regardless of all the assaults that are on uh, the Word of God today by those who profess to be those who love the Word of God and love Christ. And there are those who want to say, now listen, we're we're all in here, we all love the Lord, we just don't agree on this. 
And, of course, I understand and I believe with all of my heart that the Lord's people can and do misunderstand or disagree over certain passages and still be brethren. But I say to you without any hesitation, uh, it is very, very difficult for me to take seriously the claims of those who profess to love Christ and yet still come down almost exactly where the feminists come down. And to name themselves evangelical feminists to me is an affront, at least in my own thinking, to the Word of God. If they wanted to take at least another word and say, look, we just have a different view of, of, the, the, of the position of men and women, that would be one thing. But in my own thinking, and I realize that this sounds like fighting words to other people, but the, the very fact is to call something like evangelical feminist is to, is to say like a evangelical... Uh, <laughs> you plug in your own sin there so that uh, uh, I won't be accused of uh, what the media does. But to couple evangelical with, with a non, even a non-Christian term like feminist to me is, uh, is, uh, is tragic. And I confess to you, and before I launch into this, let me confess. Certainly this is an, an issue that many of us become passionate about. And in that passion, sometimes we send out signals uh, that don't communicate well to those perhaps on the other side. Uh, let me say again, as clearly as I know how, my purpose is not to come into the, the pulpit to pick a fight or to call names. My purpose is to edify the, the God's people with his word. And I do recognize, uh, and this is something that I did not understand at one time, but I do recognize the fact that sometimes people are in a different camp because they have been deeply wounded, greatly abused by some who have used these very passages against them. And sometimes if someone gets into the pulpit and becomes blustery or passionate, uh, they don't hear what you're saying. They just hear the same thing uh, in the, the same attitude. So do uh, hear as the Lord gives you ears and I will do all that I can to passionately set forth what I believe the Word of God with clarity teaches. And yet, it is not my purpose simply to sound belligerent. Having said that, I think they could not have picked a worst position to take. And I personally am offended by the very term evangelical feminists. <clears throat> Nevertheless, when we come to this passage, there is a certain uh, tenor to it. There are themes that run throughout that hold it together and I think make it radiantly clear regardless of those who uh, are doing all they can to say that men and women are so radically equal that the thought of submission of one to the other is anti-Christian. Uh, let me get one more thing off my chest here. I think it's unbelievable... <laughs> For some of these to say 
that the position of submission one to another is anti-Christian, yet if we call their position anti-Christian, somehow we're bigoted and being unloving. Uh, let's, let's get everything out on the table the way it is. Uh, I believe we live in a day where we've lost it, it, biblical concepts of manhood and, uh, and many women are simply living in rebellion and attempting to justify what they're doing with the Word of God. It may be because they've been abused and I understand that. And I would pray that God would send great healing and I pray that I would not be a bore that would drive them in further to their own erroneous position. So, that's as many caveats as I can give, I think, in one message. So let's take this passage and bow before it. Now, what about... If you wonder where some of this stuff comes from, it's from sitting and reading this literature. I just can't believe some of the things that are said by those who earnestly believe that this is what the Word of God teaches. And I, I realize anybody can say that. But uh, it, it is astounding. Uh, it is truly, truly astounding. So, what's the difference between what Paul is saying in Ephesians 5 that we looked at the last couple of weeks and what Peter is saying here? Well, there is a, something of a difference in context. Not entirely. Some of the themes are the same, but there is a slightly different context and we're addressing different issues <clears throat> Paul is certainly giving a very clear exposition of what it means to be filled with the spirit and one of those things is a proper understanding of the roles between men and women Peter as we're going to see, is also speaking about what the Christian life should look like. And it will include husbands and wives in their various roles. But here, we have a slight difference. What do we do if a husband does not obey the Word of God? Paul does not directly address such an issue, whereas Peter does. And that is what gives us <clears throat> uh, more insight into this issue of the role relationships between men and women. How is a wife to respond to such a difficult and trying, frustrating and heartbreaking situation. Well, we have clear answers to these questions in this portion of Peter's epistle. So, we want to consider for the next few weeks, again, the issue of submission. The title of uh, tonight's message will be, If Any Obey Not the Word. If Any Obey not the word. Now, over the next few weeks, we want to consider three main thoughts. And I'm not going to uh, hopefully perjure myself by saying when we'll get to any of them, other than I know we'll start the first one tonight. That's uh, one of the differences when we're doing a looser and formal study like this than when we're doing strict expositions. But 
<clears throat> we have three main thoughts in this passage that we want to unfold, but there's a great deal to consider under each of these important heads. So here are the things that we will be looking at in the weeks ahead, though we will only begin on the first one this evening. I think I'm safe ground there. Number one, we want to look at the wife's responsibility of submission. The wife's responsibility of submission. Number two, the wife's difficult trial in submission. The wife's difficult trial in submission. And that, of course, is not to imply that submission is always a trial, but the specific context of a husband who will not obey the word of God regarding his own role. And number three, the wife's beauty in submission. The wife's beauty in submission. So, God being our helper, let us take up the first thought, the wife's responsibility of submission. And we read this entire passage so that we might get, again, something of the feel for the context uh, in which uh, we seek the Lord's light. <clears throat> now, we want to begin by considering what submission means. We've talked, it about, uh, we've talked about that just a little bit the last few weeks, and we want to take it up again uh, for the sake of clarity. Uh, here, Paul uh, Peter says in chapter 3, verse 1, Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. Now, the words, be in subjection. We want to uh, lay hold of what they mean. And this, this word uh, from which these uh, thoughts come is originally a military term, which means to rank under or to arrange under, to place under, depending on the context and the, the tense and all various grammatical considerations. Sometimes it means to be forcibly placed under subjection or sometimes it means a voluntary submission as in love. Uh, which we saw uh, last week. <clears throat> and here we have the notion of being in subjection to your own husbands. And the first thing we want to do then is to lay out what submission does actually mean. How does it work out? What does it look like? It's fine to have a definition. But once we have that definition, how does that work out into our lives? Secondly, we want to consider what submission does not mean. And that's probably about as far as we'll get this evening. So, <clears throat> considering this idea of there being an arrangement under, a rank under, we are looking at submission as it applies from a wife to her husband. And the first thing we want to consider about submission and its meaning is this. Submission is a good work that glorifies God. Submission is a good work that glorifies God. There are many, there are many that immediately vilify the word submission. Now, those are the more 
radical of the feminists, of course. They don't like the idea of submission in, in, in almost any kind of context, as we read week before last. However, there are those uh, who would label themselves, of course, evangelicals, who say there is such a, a thing as submission, but not of the wives to the husbands. They just really don't like that thought. They just think it's unchristian. Well, we want to rescue people from, from at least those who have an ear, from thinking in, uh, of submission in, in very negative terms. Submission, therefore, uh, I suggest, on the basis of the passage that we've looked at this evening, or have begun to delve into, is a good work that glorifies God. Peter begins this portion of his epistle saying, in verse 11 of chapter 2, Dearly beloved, speaking to the Christian reader, Dearly beloved, I beseech you, as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. This is how he begins. You are children of God, and by virtue of the new birth, by virtue of being bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, you are God's children. And that means that this world, in the ultimate sense, is not your home. Your true home is heaven. Now, this can be abused. Now, we're not talking about going out and sitting on a mountaintop and just waiting till the Lord comes back and not being vitally involved in our communities, in our world, in this lost place, this lost uh, world where men and women desperately need to hear the glories of the gospel of Christ. No, we, we live here, we are in the world, we're not of the world, but Peter's point is speaking of ultimate realities. While we live in this world, we are really just pilgrims and strangers. We are God's children, as so wonderfully set forth by Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress, on our journey to the celestial city. And while we're on that journey, we are in a real combat, a, a mortal combat, and we must come to grips with it and learn how to fight. We've got to learn how to war this holy war. And it is against fleshly lusts that are warring against our souls. We need to recognize the reality of that warfare. And then he says in verse 12, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of of visitation. Now, Peter's epistle is written to believers who are suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ. If we were to go back and read from the beginning of the epistle, we would see that very clearly. And uh, all through Peter's writings, it is obvious that God's people are suffering for the name of Christ. Very often when we think of that, we simply think of the most extreme cases 
of our brothers and sisters in ages past who were burned in Nero's garden, who were thrown to the lions and wild beasts and torn apart. And all of these things are true. And God's people have suffered in these ways throughout the history of His people. But there are other ways in which the Lord's people suffer. There are other ways in which they are persecuted. And it is clear by the context. <clears throat> Peter gives us wonderful counsel about living for Christ in a hostile world. And he does so by drawing regularly from the sufferings of Christ. Christ is the example, as we have read, and as we will uh, look at in a, in a few moments a little more closely. And <clears throat> we want to then understand how he is uh, putting all of this together. Peter uses the word conversation, not in the sense of verbal communication, not in the sense of talking with one another, as we commonly use it today. Rather, the word conversation here means conduct expressed according to certain principles. In an earlier day, the word conversation was used to speak of the entire life. Because nothing more clearly speaks of what our heart is all about than what comes out of our mouths. But it represented the whole life. And so when, when, when Peter says in verse 12, having your behavior, having your way of life, having your lifestyle honest among the Gentiles, he is telling us that we need to live lives of holy conduct in the face of a hostile and God-hating society. In the face of a God-hating world. So then, the Apostle gives us a number of examples of good works that will cause the lost to recognize that Christians are a truly different people and that their conduct brings Great glory to the God they serve. Listen to his words once again. Having your way of life honest among the Gentiles, among those who are lost, that whereas they speak evil against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, <clears throat> We find this kind of talk throughout the Scriptures. Peter learned this from the Lord Jesus Christ. He himself said that we are to let our good works so shine that our Father in Heaven might be glorified by them. And this is the way our lives should be. And therefore, he's going to unfold for us what some of those good works that bring glory to our God truly look like. You say, you know, brother, this is a, a theme that, that you seem to speak about a great deal. It is because it's all through the Scriptures. 
It isn't that I simply go from one place to another staying on one theme. This is a theme that is inescapable in every epistle. You are saved by the grace of God to glorify and magnify the God of grace. And how is that God glorified? By a life of loving and cheerful submission to His will, even to the death. So, Peter's going to give us some examples of what that looks like. And it is directly connected to our theme this evening. <clears throat> he then says in verse 13, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. And that word submit is the same word as submission in chapter 3. He says, all right, Christians, submit yourselves. This is a willing ranking of ourselves under the authority of local government. He says, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God, that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Now he says, in other words, that Christians ought to be the best citizens they can possibly be. That's the point. Christ-honoring citizens bring glory to God. We are to willingly subordinate ourselves under every law of the government that's over us. And every civil authority, federal government, local government. And of course, this does not mean that we must obey them when they are calling us to disobey the living God. But apart from that, brethren, we should be exemplary. We should willfully, or I should say willingly and willfully, cheerfully obey our God by obeying the local government. In other words, if it says keep off the grass, keep off the grass. If it says 55 miles an hour speed limit, go 55 miles an hour. He then makes a point regarding our obedience. For so is the will of God that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. <clears throat> In other words, it is the will of the sovereign God of heaven and earth for His own beloved children to subordinate themselves to the authorities that He Himself has established. And in this way, we bring Him glory. God put that government there. It may be imperfect. It may be wicked. But to the best of our ability, we are to walk as citizens who obey the government. And we are to live lives that so clearly, so clearly, joyfully obey 
that those who would love to tear us apart with their words cannot do so. That their efforts are in vain because our lives say otherwise. If you don't know someone, if you don't know the way they live, it's pretty easy to believe anything about them. But if you live in such a way before the eyes of others that clearly speaks that you are a willing subject, we're bringing glory to the living God. This is a proper relationship of submission to authority. A willing and joyful pursuit of whatever those ordinances are so that, and to do them in such a way as that it glorifies our God in heaven. By living lives of blameless purity, God's children may silence the foolish complaints of those who despise the faith. It is clear that the enemies of the Christian community of Peter's day were spreading malicious gossip and spreading poisonous rumors about the faith. And so Peter is saying, let me tell you how to combat that. Live holy lives submitting yourselves to the government so that you cannot be pointed at as being anarchists. Remember, as we've talked about in our study of Revelation, in the early days of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, Christians were libeled with many slanders because they, they took the, the, the Lord's table and they served a risen Savior who had, who had said, this is my flesh and this is my blood. The rumors that circulated were that the Christians were cannibals. Because you could not see the Christian's God and they refused to bow to any of the images that the state commanded them to. They were called atheists. All manner of things were brought against them. Peter is saying, live holy lives. And you show that by a life of willingly subjecting yourself even to an authority that is unworthy of that respect. So, the first thing we consider then is that submission is a good work that glorifies God. And all of us are to be examples of that in many different ways. But, in this context, specifically in our citizenship. Secondly, submission in trying circumstances is Christ-like. Submission in trying circumstances is Christ-like. Peter goes on to say, <clears throat> For so is the will of God, in verse 15, that with well-doing, Ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free 
and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. He says, you want to show men how free you are? Be great servants. Understand the point? It's true. You're God's children. It's true. You serve a higher authority than the local governor or the mayor. You serve the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the resurrected Christ. You serve the one who rules over all things with a glorious hand, with might and power. You are children of the King. And you know, in those days, especially among the poor and, and the uneducated, it was probably very easy to say, I don't have to do what these pagans tell me to do. I'm a child of the king. And brethren, that's no exaggeration. I've, I've known people in my lifetime that have said things very similar to that. We don't have to listen to all of that. We're children of God. That's the very opposite of what the Word of God is teaching us. You want to show your strength? Do you want to show exemplary freedom? Submit yourself even to an unworthy authority. And not only that, but as you do that with joy and willingness as unto the Lord, you are emulating the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen. Peter says, Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongly. For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called. You were called to this, brethren, as a Christian. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow in his steps. Over and over, brethren, we could go to the Gospels and see the Lord Jesus Christ submitting Himself to unjust and unworthy authorities. You, you're Jesus and, and your disciples, you need to pay the temple tax. Christ says, Peter, who should be paying this tax? The children or strangers? Well, the strangers ought to. That's right. Implying we're God's children. We shouldn't have to. But go down and catch a fish. You'll find a piece of money in his mouth and you take it and give them their tax money. They tried to trick the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, give me, give me a coin. All right, whose inscription is, is this? Caesar's? All right. Well, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render unto God the things that are God's. And, and we could go to many places where Christ even submitted to uh, the, um, some of the customs of his day that the living God would not have to. 
And yet he did. He was exemplary in his submission to the authorities around him. There could be no more glorious thought than Luke chapter 2, verse 51 and 52. Go turn there. Here is an example that should grip our hearts and it should brightly illustrate what we're attempting to lay hold of. Verse 51, And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, excuse me, Nazareth, and was subject unto them. But his mother kept all these sayings in her heart, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature, and in favor with God and man. Now, this is shortly after the event that took place, where Christ had said to his parents, I must be about my father's business. I must be about my father's business. He had made very clear in that statement that he understood that his father was not the earthly man Joseph, but the father in heaven. And that makes this passage all the more remarkable because Christ Whatever he understood, and there have been many books written about what Christ understood and when, how much did he really understand about himself and his mission, when did he see these things, when did he recognize these things. Well, we know that at this tender age, he understood that his father was not Joseph, but Almighty God, and that he was here to do his father's business And he could have said, now, look, you go on home and I'll come back when my Father in Heaven tells me to. Joseph and Mary were sinful human beings. And yet, it says, he went down with them. Here he is stunning all the doctors of the law with his answers and with his knowledge and his understanding of Scripture. And he could have gone on. And yet his mom and dad said, all right, time to come home. And he went home. Brethren, stop and think about that. God in the flesh submitting to sinful human beings. He was subject unto them. Same word. This is not a bad word. Do you know what kind of inner strength it took for Christ the God-man to submit to sinful human beings? And yet He did so joyfully before His Father. Children, this is something you should recognize. It isn't strength and it certainly isn't wisdom to say, well, i got to be me and i got to do my own thing. You want to be the freest fellow or or the freest young lady on the planet, joyfully submit to the authorities that the Lord has put over you. Joyfully submit. I didn't say through grit teeth. Joyfully submit because you're submitting to God in doing so. Serve Him. Well, what's all this got to do with husbands and wives? It's got everything to do with where Peter's going. 
we go back. Now let's stop and think what we've seen in, in, in chapter 2 thus far. We've been exhorted as Christians to obey the government. It didn't say if it's a good government, if it's a Christian government, if it's a democracy or if it's socialism or if it's whatever. It just says the government. They were living in the days of a Roman pagan empire. And Christ is saying, submit. And then he admonishes servants, slaves. All right, slaves, submit yourselves to your masters. What? Why didn't Peter say, look, you're all free. It's absolutely wrong for there ever to be any notion of submission between human beings. This is wrong. Submission and subjection is a terrible anti-Christian thought. Slaves, free yourselves. Run away. You don't have to listen to those people. Peter says, serve them. Serve them. Not only serve them, submit yourselves. Willfully submit yourselves to your Master with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but to the froward, to the perverse, to the backward, to the mean and nasty. Now, brethren, you have to understand. All, all of us here do, don't we? Aren't we connected enough that we recognize that you can't do this joyfully in the flesh? Who can submit to someone that can make your life absolute misery and do it with joy to the Lord? Someone born of God's Spirit can. And that's Peter's point. From the government to slaves, you serve and bring glory to God. Live a life of such purity, such honesty, that even when they want to slander you, it can't stick. Just like the Lord Jesus. All the witnesses got together and they said this about Him, and they said that about Him, and they, they threw out every kind of hellish lie they could. And the amazing thing is the Word of God said their testimonies wouldn't agree. It's the law of God that, that a witness, there had to be two or three witnesses in agreement. They couldn't agree. They couldn't make their charges stick. They killed the Lord anyway. And we may be persecuted anyway. But if we honor the living God, if we submit ourselves to authorities, even those who are wicked, it is Christ-like. He goes from that to the Lord Jesus Christ and His own sufferings. Jesus submitted Himself to His loving Father, and in so doing, He submitted Himself to a system that the Pharisees had, had perverted, And the Lord was constantly correcting those things. You've heard it said. You've heard it said. The Pharisees will tell you to do this. Well, Moses told you to do this. Do it. 
but don't do like the Pharisees. But the Lord Jesus Christ obeyed the law. He obeyed God's law. He obeyed man's law. And He suffered doing it. There's no escape. He was called to it. There was going to be suffering. But in His very suffering, what happened? Let's, let's look and see. Verse 21, Hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow His steps. You should follow His steps in submitting to the Father, in submitting to the authorities, even to suffering, even to death who did no sin. And we can't say that. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When people attacked him with their mouths, he didn't attack back. When he suffered, he threatened not. Now think about the last argument you had with a friend or a brother, husbands, wives. Think about your last heated argument. I hope that was years ago. But if it wasn't, is this what you exemplify? Reviling not again? If something was said to you, did you respond with, ah, you said that? I've been storing this up. I've been waiting for the moment. And now that you've said that, ha, I'm going to say this. Well, that's the way we are. That's not the way Christ was. When He was reviled, he reviled not again. When he was threatened, or when he was, when he suffered, he threatened not. You, you, you try that with me, and you're going to pay for it. Well, husbands and wives even get that way. You, you pull that. You go ahead. You try that, and you see what happens. Christ didn't threaten. Now, I'm not saying there aren't times under the influence of the Spirit of God and with the light of the Scriptures. I'm not saying there aren't times that we don't clearly reprove and rebuke. We have to do that sometimes. But that's different between just threatening because someone's standing on our nerves, because someone's attacking us, because someone's vilely and viciously maligning us. Jesus reviled not again. What did He do? He committed Himself to Him that judgeth righteously. When those things came upon Him, what did He do? He plotted and planned how He would get even. Right? No. That's us. He, he thought and thought and thought and said, mm -hmm, okay, yeah, I saw the way that went down. The next time that happens, I'm, I'm going to come back with this. This will, this will put them right in their place. No. What did He do? He committed Himself to His Father. Father, You are wise and You are sovereign and You are ruling over all those things that are taking place in my life right now. And the people that are attacking me, the people that are saying what they're saying, I pray for them because what they're doing is sinning and they will answer to You for it. Have mercy on them, Father. What did the Lord Jesus say from the cross? Father, forgive them! For they know not what they do. He commended Himself to His Father. 
This is what we should be doing. And that's what introduces us to chapter 3. Likewise, ye wives. Likewise, ye wives. Be in subjection to your own husbands. You virtually have to make these two chapters nonsense to throw out the notion of submission one to the other, of wives to their husbands. What is clear all the way from verse 11 is that Peter is telling us under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost that there are authorities that God puts over us. Sometimes they're, they're wonderful ones. Sometimes they are miserable ones. Wicked. And they make our lives miserable. How will we find joy and comfort? By submitting ourselves and committing ourselves to God. But then that's That's a word for all of us, let alone the sisters. But that's what we want to unfold in the weeks ahead. Let me simply uh, develop this very quickly with uh, some points. Uh, Having discussed these things, what we're ultimately saying is submission is an act of obedience to God. This kind of submission is obedience to God. Whether we're... Brethren, if you really believe that when you got behind that steering wheel and it said 55 miles an hour, that to go 59 miles an hour was breaking the law of God. Now, I know the way the arguments go. Yeah, yeah, they give you a 10 mile an hour grace period. So it's not really... Really, you know, really breaking the law. They're not going to stop you for it. Well, you, can, you can get on a, all those arguments that you want. But the point is, those limits are established under the sovereign rule of God. And whether it's don't walk on the grass, don't, uh, whatever. As long as it does not call us into conflict with our God, our joyful And our pure obedience to it brings glory to God because we are obeying Him under the authorities He's established. Next, submission is often displayed by specific acts of obedience. It's not only obedience to God, but submission then is displayed in the various acts whether it be ordinances of government or or the requirements of a husband. As we see here, we are told to obey the government, obey the governors. Obey the king as supreme, the policemen, all of that. Slaves to masters, wives to husbands, and we finally see that exemplified in in verse 7, I'm sorry, in verse 6, even as Sarah obeyed, obeyed Abraham. 
calling Him Lord. <laughs> That's shocking language in our day. Calling Him Lord. That's respect. Finally, as I've already alluded, submission is an act of respect exhibited to those who are unworthy. Some, uh, or I should say, it is often, I left out an important word there, submission is an act of respect often exhibited to those who are unworthy of that respect. And we've seen that very plain. Or very plainly said before us here in the Scriptures this evening. The Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect God-man submitting Himself to sinners from His parents to local government. He did not rally up a group and say, look, I'm the living God. Nobody is to obey this Caesar. Caesar's up there trying to take my place. He's taking all the worship. They're worshiping Him out here in the stadiums and the coliseums. They're giving Him praise. They should be giving it to me. I'm going to get a party together. We're going to call it a very, very conservative party. And we're going to stand against everything these guys are saying because they are subverting the law of God. Now, wasn't that man sitting on that throne? Wasn't he disobeying the first two commandments? He surely was. Jesus Christ knew that he was ultimately going to conquer all of these things. How did he do it? By submitting to his father. He submitted to His Father. And that lays the groundwork for chapter 3. With the exception that we will begin next week considering what submission does not mean. No doubt some of the things I've said tonight will raise some questions. Well, if you say this, what about that? And we want to look at some of those notions. But let's close with this tonight. Who is the great example in all of this? Peter can write, none but the Lord Jesus Christ. As he writes or dictates this epistle, he tells us that hereunto were ye called because Christ also suffered for us. Do you understand why he brings this up? Brethren, can you imagine the extraordinary love for His Father and the immense inner strength it took for the God-man to come into a sin-cursed world and obey flawed, sinful parents to live in a worshipful community that was dead and dry as a stick and that had perverted the laws of God and was swimming in self-righteousness. And during a day when a weak and feeble and frail man sat several countries away on a throne demanding that everyone worship him. And yet, Coming into this world, He did not withhold Himself 
from being maligned, slandered, and ultimately put to death for the sins of his people. But he was the freest man that ever lived. And he secured for us in his suffering the freedom and the strength to submit. Submission is not a weakness. Submission is not a vile concept. It is the one under which Christ Himself walked, which He calls us to, and which we will see unfolded in the weeks ahead. The very strength by which a woman deals with a man who will not obey the Word of God. May we look to Christ and learn how to walk in this submission. Let's pray. Thank you, blessed Father. Thank you for your holy mercies. Thank you for your grace. Oh, how imperfect we are and how imperfect our attempts to speak of Thee and Thy Word are. But Lord, Your Word roars like a lion. Father, help us to be a Christ-honoring, humble, submissive people with the mighty strength of Almighty Christ. Lord, in our submission, may we bring glory to Him who loved us and saved us. May we bring glory to the God of heaven and earth. And may all of this be to the glory and honor of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. 
And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.